everyone has someone they don't like. Some even have those they cannot stand. But sometimes it burns deeper than that. It gets under your skin, into your soul, so you despise every single thing about this other. And here's a secret. Your hate says more about you than them. When I approached my father, he said, you want to have a relationship with a North Korean communist bastard? On Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Nemesis. Because it's that left, that right jump, or don't. Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat. Coming up next, stay tuned. to get some higher education, right? And on my first day, I met this guy who said he was running to be student class president and could he count on me for support? I was like, cool, man, sure. I didn't know anybody. I was certain he was just as good as anybody else. And then later on, I saw him. And he was wearing a signboard and it said, don't vote for me. I'm a big stupid jerk. And myself and several others examined the sign and you know, we thought it might be counterproductive if you want to run for office. Then, the dude wearing the sign, he looked up and started running away. Then another guy who looked exactly like the dude in the sign ran by giving chase, screaming bloody murder. Turned out, the would-be politician had an identical twin brother out to foil his plans. And as time progressed, these two went from bad to worse to even worse than that. It wasn't just a sour relationship. I wouldn't even call them enemies. It went way deeper than that. Today, on Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX, we proudly present Nemesis. Stories about those out to deliberately, methodically, callously destroy everything you hold dear and decimate all that you cherish. My name is Glenn Washington, and I want to get right into it because they have long said that we can be our own worst enemy. Elizabeth, she discovered that they, they, well, they ain't lying. In late January of 2002, I was sitting on the edge of my bed at like three o'clock in the morning and for about a week or so, I'd been hearing this AM radio static. It was like, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And I would get up out of bed because it was keeping me awake. And I'd start running all through my house, listening to all the appliances, you know, putting my ear up next to my computer. This noise has to be coming from somewhere. And then I hear, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And I knew where the sound was coming from. It was coming from inside of my head. And I know I'm the only one who can hear it. It was an auditory hallucination. And for weeks, nighttime would come, and then this voice would call my name, and I'm hearing the Elizabeth. Finally, I said, what? And he said, are you reading Crime and Punishment? And I said, yes. And he said, so am I. And then we started talking about that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people with morals and people who don't have morals and got into this 
conversation about ethics. I'd had also several visual hallucinations, though not as frequently. My grandmother had died in January. About two weeks after she died, I was walking through my living room and saw into my kitchen that there was a coffin in my kitchen. Um, just you know, walked towards it and I get just close enough to touch it and it moves and it's my grandma and she turns into my mom and then back into my grandma. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. I didn't tell anybody for a long time that I was hearing this voice. I was terrified to tell him because I felt like this is what going crazy is and I don't I don't want to go crazy. If I tell people that this is what's happening to me, then they're immediately going to take me out of my life and put me in an insane asylum. And finally, I did tell my psychiatrist and he prescribed an antipsychotic medication and said, main thing is don't engage with the voice. Don't talk back that I was fine to live on my own and that no one was going to lock me up as long as I didn't engage in conversation. So then I worked very hard to not talk to him and it became a kind of battle. Following that, I had these brutal headaches and I was experiencing this sensation where my bones were vibrating. So like on the inside, it was like somebody had struck me with a tuning fork and you just felt this like on the inside of your body. And between that and the headaches, the sort of physical sensations of both of those things were so intolerable that I started banging my head against the wall. And it was really an attempt to kill myself. My mom started taking me to see different psychiatrists in the Boston area and They each had a different diagnosis. You have bipolar disorder, you have bipolar 2, you have late-onset schizophrenia. And my mom, who's a psychotherapist, she and I have a very close relationship, and just none of this was making any sense to her. She just was not buying these diagnoses. We went to see a colleague of hers, a psychologist, and we sat down with her and started telling her the story. I'd gone to see a doctor to be treated for ovarian cysts, and they put me on hormone medication. And I had a strange reaction to the hormone medication where I became really depressed. You know, I was sort of weeping before I could even get out of bed. I had no history of mental illness. I had no even history of depression, really. My mom would say, like, I'm sort of a ridiculously optimistic person. I went back to the doctor and he said, well, I think you might want to consider going on antidepressant medication. I took Paxil first, then we switched to Celexa, several different antipsychotic medications at several different times. Lexapro, Risperidol, Zyprexomposine, Clonopin. Lorazepam. And at the end of that, a psychologist, she said, I don't think that you're crazy. I think that you're toxic. All the medication that you've been prescribed over the last year has actually been poisoning you. My first reaction was, I don't want that to be the answer because now I'm married to this idea that I'm I'm mentally ill. I've spent the last year and a half coming to terms with the fact that I'm insane, losing my job, losing friends, almost losing my life, all because of medication I was taking. I didn't entirely believe that I was going to come off the medication and the symptoms were going to go away. So you come off the medication in very tiny increments, and each time you do, whatever symptoms you've been having get a little bit worse. The auditory hallucinations got worse and worse and worse. I could not not engage with this guy anymore. I was talking to him on a regular basis at night, and he was talking to me about hurting my mom. And one night I was up, and it was snowing out, and we were having a conversation about how much it would have to snow in order for the snowbank to be big enough for us to bury my mom's body in. Is it deep enough? And I 
just freaked out, sort of barricaded myself into my bedroom. And the next morning, I told my stepdad and my mom, like, I don't think I can be here anymore. I think it's not safe for you guys. It's not safe for me, for me to be here. And so I was admitted to a psych ward in Boston. It's a locked psych ward, and there are bars on the windows. And I just started screaming, and I felt like my mind was breaking. I felt like this is the moment. This is it. You are now going to just surrender to these voices inside you, and you're not going to come back. My social worker, she sort of pulled me away from the scene and the chaos and got me into this very quiet room. And she kept saying, Elizabeth, come here. Elizabeth, come back. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And she sort of coaxed me back out of my out of my mind and said, you know, you're, you're going to be fine. Like, you have to keep fighting this, and you're going to be fine. And something switched that afternoon where I realized I have to keep fighting. I have to make a choice. I can't give up now. Like, I'm so close to being off of this medication. It was sort of trying to trust in that. Everything that you're feeling is not from within you. You have to exercise it from your system. Maybe about six or seven days after being discharged, suddenly it was gone. I'm not hearing that. It was just quiet. He hasn't said anything in like eight or nine hours. And I ran inside and I was, Mom, they're gone. They're gone, you know. And, and then slowly over the next month, everything started to dissipate. And within about six weeks, most of it was gone. And I still don't know. I mean, things did emerge from inside me that were violent and dark and figuring out how how to make sense of that inside of who I know myself to be has been probably the hardest part. That story was produced by Jeremy Richards with production assistance from Anna Sussman and Stephanie Fu. Now today on Snap, we're talking about nemesis, this deliberate something ominous that wishes or plots or plans for your harm or destruction. And when you think about it, nothing fits this nemesis bill better than North Korea. They're weird, strange, scary. We don't understand what they're doing, but that might just be because I ain't a guy from Jersey named Bobby Egan. Take exit 70A off the New Jersey Turnpike towards Hackensack, and a smiling cartoon pig in a cowboy hat will direct you to Cubby's Barbecue. A barbecue baby back ribs, pulled pork, uh, grilled chicken, great black Angus steaks. Owned by high school dropout and former lawn boy to a New Jersey mob boss, Bobby Egan. Hi, I'm Bob Egan from Cubby's Barbecue Restaurant here in northern New Jersey, about 10 miles as the crow flies from the UN mission in New York. Cubby's, it turns out, is a popular hangout for UN delegations. And Bobby is friendly with just about everyone. It was a leisurely place that the diplomats from the UN can come to at nighttime and on the weekends bring their families and have a little barbecue. A lot of times we had Vietnamese, Iraqi, North Korean officials. One day Bobby gets a phone call from the North Korean delegation. They say they want to develop a relationship with Bobby. They want him to be their guy, like their pal. And Bobby thinks this is kind of cool. There's only one problem. We're at war with North Korea. Technically, we have, I think, 40,000 troops locked and loaded, pointing guns at North Korea. It's just the truth right now. There's not, there hasn't been an end to the Korean War. States like these constitute an axis of evil. But Bobby goes for it anyway. 
you know, I befriended them. And the, one of the first things we did, we had a barbecue at my dad's house. When I approached my father, he said, you want to have a relationship with a North Korean communist bastard? And I said, Dad, these are good people. He goes, I fought those people. I said, listen to me, that was 50 years ago, okay? They have more and more barbecues. And Bobby becomes particularly close with one Ambassador Han. Well, Mr. Han and I became brothers. We were the same age. We both had two daughters. Han and I were the first ones that were granted permission by his central government to develop a close and personal relationship. What do guys do? We eat, we hunt, we fish, we occasionally womanize. You know, just regular knock-around guys. Right, but these regular knock-around guys also happen to be building a secret nuclear arsenal. They're classified as the evil empire, and we don't officially talk to the evil empire. If they were that desperate, they tried every other avenue, diplomatic, back-channel, business, every other avenue to work with this country, and everybody turned them down. So I was maybe the last option, but I was the only option. U.S. intelligence quickly picks up on Bobby's relationship with Han. A guy in a suit shows up at Cubby's to have a little sit-down with Bobby. Turns out, not only does Ambassador Han need him, so does his country. So they come up with an arrangement. I'm not a government official, but I certainly at the time was a government asset. I can do things that government officials can't do because I don't have to play by the rules, okay? You know, and and I'm going to be quite frank. I want to have to go out and have a little fun and want to relax. Whether he's in a massage parlor or in a poker game, what difference does it make? If I can gain his trust a little bit more, I did it, as long as it didn't hurt anybody. The thing is, he's not a trained spy. He's not really a spy at all. He's a restaurant owner from Hackensack. There is no mission. So when Ambassador Han invites him to visit North Korea, the restaurant owner sees real hunger for the first time. And he's touched. Then I seen the plight of the Koreans. I got out of myself, I got out of America, and then I started to understand how the Korean people have suffered for the last 50 years. How many millions of people are dying every year. And then back in Jersey, Ambassador Han asks Bobby for a favor. A pretty big favor. You know, he had called me and said there was a flood, and, I, and he says, I need you to aid the Korean people. And I said, Mr. Ambassador, I can't even pay my damn meat bill here. I said, how the hell am I going to help your country? But Bobby knows people. He ends up generating millions of dollars worth of humanitarian aid to North Korea, our enemy. This could be the end of the story. A barbecue owner from Jersey befriends an enemy of the state and helps to save millions of lives. We're not aiding the enemy. Who we're aiding is maybe a million people a year that are starving over in North Korea. It's a pretty good story. Bobby's done his good deed. But then the U.S. government starts to panic about North Korea's nuclear capability. What happened was Bush was coming out and saying that the North Koreans weren't being cooperative. Bobby hears what sounds distinctly like a war drum coming from Washington, D.C., So I finally said, you know something, I think this Bush is setting up to go to war with you guys. So Bobby and Ambassador Han start talking. He begins passing messages from the North Korean delegation to the White House. And we talked four or five times a day, and there was all kinds of messages coming from Penyang, and I would pass them on to the president's national security advisor. They would come in, I'd be working the registers. A lot of times I'd be up at the counter, back, back cooking on the grill. There's tapes of me talking to National Security Advisor Jack Pritchard, and I'm taking an order at the restaurant. And you hear me saying, do all the way, and uh, put a Frenchie with that. Bobby tells the White House 
that North Korea wants to negotiate. They wanted to start talking again. They wanted to set the dialogue up again. And Bush came out and he would say that the North Koreans don't want to talk, that the North Koreans, you know, aren't being cooperative. And I, I knew that wasn't true. Bobby gives some advice to Han. Make it clear that you're willing to negotiate. If the White House won't listen, make it clear to everyone else. Bobby calls a Cubbies regular, who happens to be a reporter at the New York Times. He arranges a meeting and gets a front-page story in which Ambassador Han announces to everyone that North Korea would like to open up talks. And soon after that article, we sat down and started having serious talks again. You know, there's a guy from North Jersey who doesn't often have the opportunity to alter world affairs and possibly prevent a war. But I think that Ambassador Han and I at the time, I think we might have single-handedly altered the course of history. So over the years, Bobby Egan has become pretty famous. I've even been on NPR. And while these days he's focused on raising his daughters, his barbecue diplomacy is always on the back burner. And if the president needs me, give me a call. That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Mark Ristich. If you want to hear more about Bobby Egan, and I know you do, check out our website at snapjudgment.org. We'll have a link to his book, Eating with the Enemy. When we return, we're going to meet a warlord, we're going to get an axe, and we're going to set something ablaze. All that and more when Snap Judgment Nemesis continues. PRX and NPR, welcome back to Snap Judgment Nemesis. Now today, we're featuring stories about people who are not really enemies, but special enemies, the intimate antagonist, the one who gets you and gets under your skin. And there is no drama like family drama. Stephanie Fu, take it away.
This is something I said pretty often at 15. And okay, yeah, I was clearly not a sweet kid, but he kind of deserved it because he spent all his time hanging out with his greasy strumpet girlfriend instead of me. I hated this woman. She didn't care about whether I was in their lives. She just wanted him all to herself every moment of every day. At this point, I was being raised by a single father and I was left alone most of the week. So on the off chance I did happen to see him, I had some choice words for him. One day, while home alone on a Saturday, I was in my dad's empty room when I saw a pink gift bag with white tissue paper in it. Huh, a present. From Harlady Pustleface, no doubt. I opened it up and took a look. Inside was a book. Parenting your out-of-control teenager. Uh-uh, no. She was the reason that he wasn't doing any parenting in the first place. I flipped the book open. Suggestions. One, do not take your child's suicidal threat seriously. She just wants attention. Two, rally your church group to picket your child with signs like, Judy does not respect her mother. Three, humiliate them at school as much as possible. Apparently, drastic measures had to be taken for drastically ill-behaved teens. Follow these steps, and you could literally save their lives. Oh, oh, ho, 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 ho. Out of control. They thought they'd seen out of control. They had no idea what out of control was. I took the book to the parking lot behind our apartment complex and opened it up to the page on monitoring your child for signs of psychosis. Then I set it on fire. I hate you, Dad. I waited until the entire right side of the book was a blackened crisp and then stomped on it to put the fire out. I placed what was left of the book back in the pink gift bag and placed it on his nightstand for him to find the next day. Beautiful. And then I was like, well, my work here is done. I'm gonna go take a nap. I woke up half an hour later to this sound. But thing is, my apartment building had regular fire drills in the middle of the day, so I just went back to sleep. But five minutes later, there it still was. Finally, I stumbled out of bed and went to knock on the door of the apartment right across the hall. My neighbor came out and I said, are you hearing this alarm right now? She said nothing, but she didn't need to. I saw the look of horror on her face, like in the movies when the monster is right behind you, over your shoulder. I turned around and sure enough, there was smoke pouring out of my dad's room. I'm calling the fire department, she screamed, and I said, wait, 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 wait. I grabbed a fire extinguisher and ran into his room. It was hard to see through the stinging smoke, but I could definitely make out that his entire nightstand was engulfed in one giant plume of flame. I pulled the ring and sprayed. The fire went out, but the room was still full of fumes and white powder. I ran back to my neighbors and said, don't call the firemen, stop. But she said, it's too late, they're coming. Fifteen minutes later, I had a whole crew of firemen inspecting every inch of my dad's room. They asked me what happened. I said, I don't know. I was, I was taking a nap. They searched for a wire for an outlet, ran their fingers in the ash, and then the chief fireman sat me down, looked into my eyes, and asked, what happened? I couldn't help it. The dam burst, and I told them all everything. 
about how she hated me, about parenting your out-of-control teenager, about how I felt so hurt and betrayed that he would abandon me to spend time with someone who didn't care to make any connection with me. And at the end of the story, the firefighter said, You know what? In your shoes, you would have done the same thing. Chin up, kid. And they left. I looked at the giant black mark on the wall at the crumbling nightstand, and I thought, Jesus, I need to take a nap. When my dad got home that night, I think he was in too much shock to even get upset about the charred wall. But he did tell me, my girlfriend didn't even buy that book. I bought that book for myself. And then he lifted up his bed ruffle and showed me some tanks under his bed. They were filled with highly flammable scented oils that he'd gotten through a failed attempt at a pyramid scheme. If the fire had moved just one foot to the right, it would have ignited them, along with the whole apartment building. My dad's still with his girlfriend, who has never said a word to me. It took a couple of years for me to realize that no matter how out of control I tried to be, their relationship was impenetrable. The only thing I was burning down was myself, potentially in a ball of eucalyptus-scented fire. But I still don't regret burning that book, not for a second. I think I saved our relationship by doing so. Can you imagine what would have happened if my dad had picketed me at my school? I would have set fire to his beamer. Now, Stephanie's story aside, real evil does exist. There are people, people who will never wash out the tragedy staining their hands. They will never wash out the damn spot. Snap Judgment's own Anna Sussman went to a former war zone to see if there was such a thing as justice. There was a morning a few years ago when I woke up knowing I was about to meet a man that good people had told me was evil. I was covering the peace process in northern Uganda. I started my reporting at a camp for displaced families. Dark, sooty rain clouds rolled over the clumps of makeshift thatched huts that had become home to hundreds of thousands during the war. The sky opened up and dropped heavy torrents of rain down onto the camp. I ducked into a damp mud hut. Rain began to seep through the thatched roof. I talked to Janet. Her brothers and sisters were killed by the rebel group, the Lord's Resistance Army. Her mother is buried in a mound of dirt and hay outside her hut. My father dead, my mom dead also I come up. Do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, No, they killed him. I talked to Yafis. He was captured by the rebels as a boy and forced to cut another child to pieces when he tried to escape. Janet and Yafis wanted the war to end. They were willing to forgive the warlords and let them live free, if that's what it took to bring peace. But the International Criminal Court, they wanted the men responsible for the massacres, for enslaving child brides, for cutting off the lips of civilians, the men in oversized sunglasses and army fatigues. They wanted them to face judgment for their crimes. Recent warrants by the International Criminal Court have turned the spotlight on a rebel group in Uganda. But the warlords weren't having any of it. They said as long as the arrest warrants remained, they would continue to fight. The attacks would go on. 
So the people of northern Uganda, the victims of the decades-long war, said forget the warrants, forget the international halls of justice, we want peace. We'll forgive the warlords, give them amnesty, let them go free, if that's what it takes. Who gets to decide what happens to these men? The victims of the war, desperate for peace by any means? Or the International Criminal Court, whose offices are out of reach of the wrathful warlords? I caught a ride out of the camp, and next came the hard part. An interview I had secured with the Lord's Resistance Army Number 3 Commander, Kenneth Banya. Kidnapped children used to call him the Nasty One. He said to have ordered attacks, enslaved wives, and masterminded the whole war. He said to have orchestrated very, very bad things. Things human beings should not do to one another. I prepare for a hostile meeting, peppered with pointed questions about his role in the war. I was ready. I wasn't going to hold anything back. I debated whether or not to shake his hand. I sat down nervously in the courtyard of the restaurant where I'd arranged to meet him. I flipped through my notebook. Kenneth Banya strode through the door with a wide smile, his hand outstretched, salt and pepper hair, toes sticking out of plastic flip-flops. Good. How was the day? It was okay. Good, good, good. No sunglasses, no gun, no fatigues, no menace. He asked me if I'd like some tea. I watch him stir spoonfuls of sugar and powdered cream into a tiny teacup. His eyes are squinty and kind. He talks about his life. He grew up on a farm in a small village. I had uh, five brothers and one sister. I'm caught off guard by his grandfatherly nature. He invites me to his home down the road, the one the government gave him, along with the amnesty and his monthly salary. A two-story concrete apartment with a blue light bulb swinging from the ceiling and paper posters of nature scenes tacked to the walls. He's kind and relaxed. He explains that he was nervous to come out of the bush, nervous that people would be angry at him, but they were forgiving. It was not easy to mix with people. I was afraid, but it was the people themselves who encouraged me to, to move free. And finally, I approach the subject of the mass atrocities he's said to have orchestrated. So, did you order attacks on civilians? Did you take forced wives? Did you plan the abduction of 139 girls from the Aboke Girls School? Did you order troops to cut off the lips of villagers? He just smiles and denies it all. But he made it clear. The war would not end until the remaining leaders were granted amnesty. Then he introduced me to his nieces and turned on the radio. Maybe it's these guys, the guys who have committed the most gruesome of human acts, who can look you in the eye and convince you that they're guilty of nothing. Banya is accused of spending years plotting attacks on innocent civilians, and someone on earth needed to judge him, not on his smile or the way he took his tea, but on the evidence, the facts, the testimonies of people like Janet. But Janet didn't care if Banya was judged. She said she was happy to let him live in his apartment and enjoy his amnesty, as long as he stayed away from her. I thanked him for his time. It began to rain. 
I shook his hand and walked away down the dirt road. And soon heavy swollen puddles turned the road into mud and soaked my clothes. I looked back to see Kenneth Banya ducking into his concrete apartment out of the rain. Thank you very much. That story was brought to us by our own Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment Nemesis continues, we keep tracking down the bad guys. Stay tuned to see if they get theirs when our program continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, Nemesis, stories about the ultimate enemy. My name is Glenn Washington, and I am excited for you to hear this next piece. We're going to Jamaica now, Snap. It's Jamaica, old Jamaica, with a story from Ainsley Burroughs about the creation of a nemesis. Victor rolled over. He eyed his mother lying across the room on the floor. She was old now and had lost her legs to diabetes. He saw a bruise on the side of her face. He cringed inside. A slur of images flashed through his thoughts. A brutal pang shot through his head. He had been drinking again. He closed his eyes. The images came to a full stop. He felt sorry for his mom. She needed him, and he hated her for it. He despised himself for not having the guts to leave. He knew she could not take care of herself if he left. He had a head full of dreams and no place to put them. His drinking became the cure for all his dreaming. Here he is, trapped in this small town taking care of his mother. He would spend days on his small farm breaking his back to then waste himself away gambling and drinking while his mother sold cigarettes out of the front door of their one-room house. One night, during a terrible storm, Victor stumbled into the house with mud all over his boots and alcohol all over his breath. This night would be like no other night. Words and other things flew, but the room went killingly quiet. The only sound coming from the room after a while was Victor's snoring. He was now 39 years old. His mother was 83, as we would find out in that week's obituaries. Irene St. Vincent died leaving only one relative, Victor St. Vincent. In the community, there was much speculation about the circumstances of Irene's death, but mostly this was whispered. The following Christmas Eve, Victor was in the rosiest of moods. He got dressed in his finest suit. 
He dabbed his face with some expensive cologne and walked a half a mile to the district center. Music was booming out of the district shop. Everybody was drinking, chatting, laughing. Victor strolled quietly into the melee. He ordered a drink, then another, then another. He ordered a drink for the bartender. She said no. He tried again. She said no again. Frank Philpott, a local regular who overheard the exchange, decided to get involved. The lady said she don't want nothing for drink. Victor looked at the bartender. I want you to be my wife, Frank uttered. Why? So you could kill her the way you kill your mama? The bar went dead quiet. Everyone knew Frank had crossed the line. Victor reached into his back pocket, and for a few moments, both men wrestled on the shop floor. There was blood everywhere. Victor had slashed Frank across the face and across the arms. The bar owner shoved Victor out of the bar. Don't come back in here. You hear me? Frank vowed that he was going to see a voodoo priest about Victor. Victor heard the news and decided he would go and see someone also. He went to a neighboring parish to see a voodoo priest who was known all over the island because his powers were stronger than all the other priests. Victor got his protection. After that, he was not really worried about Frank. One day, in the district center, Frank saw Victor walking past the rum bar. He rushed outside in his drunken state and screamed, Your time is coming. Don't worry. Even if I don't get you, your mama duppy is going to get you. That night, Victor could not sleep. He was tormented by the statement Frank made. Right through the night, he heard rocks landing on his roof and hitting the side of his house. Something was hitting his house. He looked outside, but nothing was visible in the darkness. In the morning, Victor went outside to see if he saw the rocks that were hitting his house. He climbed the roof. There were no rocks anywhere. Frank's word rang out in his head. Even if I don't get you, your mama duppy is going to get you. Victor started thinking Frank had somehow gotten his mother to haunt his house. Victor was on the edge of losing his mind. He would tell people, but no one knew what was happening. He got so stressed, he had to go to the doctor. At the doctor, Victor found out that he had diabetes, just like his mother. Over a period of about five years, the doctor slowly amputated more and more of Victor's legs until all he had were two shortened thighs. He started selling cigarettes out of his front door, just like his mother had done. People spoke about Victor in secret. Everyone wondered if Frank had worked voodoo on him. One week, it rained for five days straight. After three days, Victor needed to use the outhouse. He roughed it through the mud and rain. The ground was so saturated that the outhouse collapsed into the pit. Victor fell in. He splashed about in the filth for more than a day. He was filthy beyond anything anyone had ever seen. Eventually, someone came and found him there. Frank heard a story about what had happened to Victor. Frank stood in front of the door where Victor sold the cigarettes and spoke to Victor in a cold, icy tone. He felt compelled to let Victor know that he had not gone to the voodoo priest. Victor asked him, what about the rocks that were hitting my house? Frank explained to Victor 
that at the end of every night, when they emptied out the ice box at the bar, he would go and fill a plastic bag with ice, hide in the bushes, and throw the ice at the house. Victor's eyes flooded with tears. Frank ordered two cigarettes from Victor, paid, and walked away. That was Ainsley Burroughs. Ainsley's piece was produced by Renzo Gorio, Anna Sussman, and Natalia Yeager. We'll have a link to all things Ainsley on our site, snapjudgment.org. And I, for one, right now, will not keep you waiting any longer. That's right, because Snap Judgment regular contributor Jeff Greenwald stopped by to let us know about his nemesis from way back. And I'll just let you know, Jeff, he doesn't hold back. When I was a kid growing up in Plainview, New York, on Long Island, my father worked in a variety store called Pergament. And among the crazy hodgepodge of things they sold in the store were the kinds of dissection kits that you use in high school. My brother and I each bought ourselves a dissection kit because we loved to dissect animals. And our main source of animals was the woods around our house. Back at this time, in the early 1960s, there were still plenty of wonderful woods, almost forests, surrounding the developments that had been built in places like Plainview on Long Island. And we would head off into the woods and go to this one particular tree called the Grandmother Tree. It was by far the biggest tree in the forest. Even at that age, it seemed to have a kind of spiritual power with all the birds and animals that lived there. But it was also the source of of some death. And we could always find a dead squirrel or a dead bird underneath the tree. My brother and I would take these robins or these squirrels home, and we would dissect them with our dissecting kits, removing the heart and the lungs and the, the intestines and putting them in little baby food jars, which we then displayed in our bedroom on a shelf that we called the museum. As I got older... My interest turned more towards the tree itself, not just as a tree, but as a sort of refuge. I would sit myself up under the grandmother tree and just read for hours. Sometimes I would just close the book that I had brought and close my eyes and just listen. The different kinds of birds, the cicadas, the, even the mosquitoes buzzing around my head. And I could just sort of let myself disappear into at will at any time. There was a lot of conflict at my home, my parents fought a lot, and somehow this tree, this grandmother tree, became the sole source of peace and quiet for me. At about the same time, when I was maybe 12 years old, somebody moved into our neighborhood. He was a man named Mandelbaum, and he was a real estate developer. One afternoon, uh, when I came home from school, my mother told me about Mandelbaum and his wife and took me aside and kind of whispered in my ear, Mandelbaum is a survivor. I didn't know what that meant. It means that he escaped from the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. He had survived the camp somehow. He hadn't actually escaped. He had been in a camp for years, and then when the war was over, he had been freed. Now he lived just about a block and a half away, and slowly but surely, he was buying up all the undeveloped lots around our 
home in our neighborhood in Plainview. The woods around our house in Plainview slowly, lot by lot, block by block, were disappearing. One spring day, after a hard winter that had buried Plainview in eight and ten foot snowdrifts, I got some books together and I headed out a few blocks to the little forest where the grandmother tree still stood. But there was nothing there. The whole lot had been completely cleared away. It was as if a bomb had fallen. The whole forest was just a huge, empty expanse of dirt covered with the treads of huge tractors and bulldozers. Not even the roots of the trees remained. Not a, not a leaf, not a stick. And I just stood there. I think the books might have fallen from my hands. I stood there looking out at this lot. What had happened to all the birds? And I was just outraged and beside myself. And I, 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 I felt so powerless. I had no idea what to do. I went home and I wrote the developer a note. Dear Mr. Mandelbaum, it would have been a better thing for you to have died in the concentration camp than to have come to this place and destroyed the refuge of all our neighborhood birds and animals. I signed the letter and I dropped it into the Mandelbaum's mailbox. About a day later, Mandelbaum's wife came walking over to our house with a very tight, fast step and showed the letter to my mother and father, who were observant Jews. They were absolutely mortified, and they said, this is unbelievable. You have to go and apologize personally to this man for this unbelievable, horrible thing that you wrote. And some current of complete rebelliousness rose up in me. I'm not going to apologize, I said. There's no way I'm going over there. I meant what I wrote. My parents couldn't believe it. They, they didn't even know how to punish me. Mandelbaum couldn't believe it either. He didn't know what to do, and we were still neighbors, so it was extremely awkward. And sometimes I would be walking up the block while Mandelbaum would be walking back down from the local grocery store, and he would very deliberately cross the street to avoid running into me. He refused to get within striking distance of me, he had told his wife, for fear of what he might do. Mandelbaum became a fixture. He, he built the largest house in the neighborhood. And every Halloween, he'd wow all the, all the local kids by handing out the most ostentatious sweets. My brother would come home from his trick-or-treating with a sack filled with uh, Rolos and Turkish taffy and milk duds, compensation for our neighborhood woods. The weeks and the months passed. I grew old enough to be pretty ashamed of, of my actions in the letter I'd written. Years after that incident, I traveled to Europe for the first time. And in some of the bars in Munich, Germany, I met middle-aged men who had actually fought alongside the Nazis and been part of Hitler's army. They asked me if I was Jewish. I told them that I was. And when I saw the expression on their faces, I realized how terrifying it must have been for a young Jewish man growing up at a time when anti-Semitism was raging through Europe. Though he was my first real nemesis, 
I'd be grateful for the opportunity to approach Mr. Mandelbaum today and apologize sincerely for that thoughtless letter that I wrote so many years ago. But I still wish he'd left us that tree. Jeff's story was produced by Pat Masidi Miller and Anna Sussman. Go to snapjudgment.org for a link to all things Jeff Greenwald. And when you're there, explore the snap. Join the Snap Nation conversation on Facebook, Twitter, Tweet, Tweet. We cannot wait to hear from you. Our final story comes to us from our friends in Baltimore and their storytelling event, The Stoop. So sit back, drink in the courage of younger days when you too had the power to take out your enemies. So I am from Buffalo Creek, West Virginia. And um, being raised in the country, it is my opinion you are raised to be tough. So, I mean, you would think that by the time I moved to Kentucky when I'm like in fourth grade, I would know how to defend myself against a bully. So about, you know, sixth or seventh grade, I meet Alma. (laughs) It's a funny name. She had fiery orange hair and um, her skin like so pale, you could see through the freckles to the other side. And she had like snaggly teeth that were wheat colored. And she would bend over me in the seat and she would say, don't you look at me, don't you look in my eyes. (laughs) You don't deserve to look in my eyes. And it was terrifying and I would run home every day to my mom and I would say, they're all bigger than me and they'll all get me. And she said, if they're bigger than you, Delmarie, you get something bigger than them and hit them with it. (laughs) This is my mom. And I said, okay. And she meant like a two by four, a brick. I mean, she was serious. Make them bleed and they'll leave you alone. And she told me to go to my locker and get my four heaviest school books and go on the school bus and sit down and to put my hand on my leg and those books on my hand. And then when Alma bent her face in mine, break her nose. And if you break her nose, Delmarie, she'll leave you alone. And I said, okay, I'll break it, I'll try. So every day I got those books sat down in my seat and Alma had this little brother who was like 11 and looked like a dirty wet dog all the time and he would like lurch over the back of that seat and that is scary the head lurching over that seat right in yours I hated him so one day it all sort of culminated when her brother he had chewed up hard-boiled egg you can imagine into a fine hot mush in his mouth And he jumps up over that seat and spits it all right in my face and on my shirt. And Alma says, how did that taste? You like the way that tastes? And I was paralyzed for a second and then I looked at my hand. And then I looked at her face. And I looked at my hand and I looked at her nose and And if you've never seen a broken nose before, blood flies everywhere. And blood flew all over my books. And I ran off at the next stop. And I ran home. And I ran up the stairs to my mommy. And I told her what happened. And she'd been making meatloafs. Her hands were all full of, like, bloody ground chuck. And she couldn't even hug me. And she was hugging me with the elbows. And I have told this story a lot. I told it in college 
And I told it in summer stock, and I felt vindicated all these years. And then one day, I told this story in the wrong group of friends. So I get to that part, right? I look at the books, and I look at her nose, and I look at the books, and when her nose breaks, and, I, and from behind me, I hear the voice of my best friend since fifth grade who knew me back then, who said, no, you didn't. <laughs> and my stomach turned and my butt got real tight and I said yes I did I did and he said he said no you didn't Dale you got off the bus and vomited and ran home and stopped riding the bus and that's the truth thank you thank you to writer actress storyteller and director Dale Marie Pernat and many thanks to Baltimore's storytelling event The Stoop check them out at thestoopstorytelling.com Well, it's about that time. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the hardest working, sexiest team in all of rock and roll. Give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. And nobody knows Nemesis like Anna Sussman knows Nemesis. Stephanie Fu, it's a family affair. Rita Daniels, she will overcome. Willabina, do not let those rugged good looks fool you. Renzo Goriel has no enemies. Pat Masidi Miller has enemies. Now, if there is someone out to get you, someone who at each and every turn pops up to lay waste to your plans, that's a shame. But know this, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has no information or knowledge about it. Many thanks to the CPB and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. Now, this is not the news. It's not the news. In fact, you could grow up with an identical twin brother who never, ever, never, not once missed the opportunity to ridicule and demean you, and you go to your family reunion, determined to finally phase him down, you could sit right next to your mother and ask her where your twin brother is, where is he, and she could say, Jeremy, you don't have a twin brother. (gasps) Oh yeah, you could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is NP. Are.